Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. And in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and chief executive of Octopus Energy, Greg Jackson. Before building one of the UK's fastest growing energy firms, Greg enjoyed a hugely successful career in the world of digital startups as both an investor and manager. In our interview, Greg tells me how he started out writing video games, why he was partly inspired to work in the energy sector because his family home was cut off when he was younger, and why he sees time as his most valuable asset. Let's go back to your early life and your early career, and then maybe we can work out how you got so interested in energy. What kind of school life did you have? Were you a a brilliant, studious young boy? You know what? I was the cheeky kid that did well, I think. So I really didn't like school and I didn't enjoy the discipline. I mean, I left when I was 16, but I always did well in exams and tests. And so I kind of got away with it. So why did you leave at 16? I just didn't like the constraints. Uh, by the way, I ended up going back a, a year later, but I left to write video games. And uh, my mum and dad weren't together. And I told my mum that I wasn't going to university. And my mum was incredibly liberal and progressive. She's like, sure, that's cool. <laughs> I told my dad and my dad had been in the army and he said, why right. don't you join the army? I said, no, I want to write video games. So, uh, you know, I did that for a year and then realized that even then technology was moving at such a pace, I could probably do with an education and uh, I ended up going to sixth form and then to university. So you very nearly slipped out of the education system and kind of, you know, became an early entrepreneur, I guess you would have been, wouldn't you, if you kept in tech at that point, uh, which is possible. But obviously, you, you recognize the value of having an education at that time while you're at university doing your A-levels. Did you have those early signs of being an entrepreneur, of wanting to start things? Yeah, I think I, I always knew I wanted to do it because I think there's that burning desire as an entrepreneur that says, hey, look, I, I can see something here. I can see an opportunity where I think... I could do better and want to do something about it. And I think, I think that's the second bit, isn't it? It's not just spotting. So we, we all sit in the pub and say, you know, why don't they do X or they should do Y? <laughs> but sometimes you've got that thing that says, I'd like to do something about it. I'm going to take the decision not to go down the normal path and instead we'll tackle this problem. And, and I think wherever I've been in life, I've always wanted to change stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm mean, at university, I guess I, you know, I ran our equivalent of a student union or after I graduated, you know, I was involved in, local campaign groups. And, and I think all these things are ways of getting out there and changing something. And what were the, was it energy at that point that was fascinating you? Was that always something that you'd kind of read about and wanted to learn more about? No, to be honest, it was tech. So I always kind of had this hankering that technology, I guess because because the video games background really, mm. that technology enabled you to take existing bits of the world where there's a problem and improve it. And it wasn't a trade-off. I mean, we'll get onto energy later, I guess, but a good example would be in energy where when we started Octopus, people thought that the only way you could provide better service was by having higher prices, and they thought it was a trade-off. But through technology, you can drive down prices and you can improve service. And so I think technology lets you change stuff, and that's always been a passion of mine. So the the young gamer, uh, did he at that point, because nowadays, of course, gamers make so much cash, don't they, from from just sitting there and having YouTube channels. When you were gaming, did you think that was a possible job? Was it ever going to lead to an income stream? Yeah, so I was writing games. And and even then, there was this kind of, there was a generation of bedroom coders that grew out of kind of teenage kids in the UK that had got computers like the Spectrum and the Commodore and had learned to program. And then start publishing the games, often entrepreneurially, sometimes through software houses. And I think 
the legacy of that is that today, you know, the UK still has this kind of position as a, 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 a country with disruptive, innovative tech companies, whether it be in, you know, for example, we lead the way in financial services technology and increasingly, I think, in energy technology. And, and there are lots of sectors, you know, ARM, the, the, the global giant that designs the chips are in virtually every mobile phone, grew up, you know, as part of that computer scene. So I think, you know, we've got a lot to thank mm. the, the, the computer companies of, of the 80s for. Do you think we celebrate that enough? Do you think we shout about that? It's interesting, isn't it? We know more about the kind of consumer-facing businesses, Google, Amazon, mm. Facebook, Apple, that, that grow out of the United States. A lot of the UK ones, I think, are in the background, like, you know, ARM. Um, and, and because of that, we perhaps don't realize the extent to which the UK still does have, you know, something of a, a powerhouse in technology. And so that's one thing. I think the other is that, you know, we do have companies that grew up here like Deliveroo. Mm -hmm. And perhaps people don't even realize that, that, you know, they started in Britain. And so we should celebrate it. Going back to your interesting kind of combination of parents there, one very relaxed and liberal, the other one with an ex-army background. How aware of money were you from them growing up? Yeah, so what, my parents split when I was probably about eight years old and I had a brother and a sister, both younger than me. So I, my mum had three kids, eight, seven and one, no income. So we lived on benefits. She then got a job in, um, in, in a pub in the evenings and we really were at the... Um, the breadline. You were, you were... Yeah, we were on the breadline. And every week was a, was a struggle, was it? Yeah, and one of the reasons actually that energy is a passion to me now was that um, we, we got cut off more than once and, and literally had, you know, no gas. And I think that leaves you with a real sense of a couple of things for me anyway. One was, of course, like I know that when people talk about energy bills, it's not just theoretical. Hmm. It's unbelievably stressful and people making decisions about, you know, what you're going to feed your family or, you know, I mean, frankly, not being able to afford a school uniform versus paying for the energy bill. I think the other one is that um, there are many sectors where uh, technology and improved operations give you the opportunity to drive down costs. And I think Jeff Bezos put it really well, actually, the guy behind Amazon, he said, look, there are companies that work hard as possible to charge customers as much as possible. And there's companies who work hard to charge them as little as possible. We, Amazon, will be the latter. And, and you know, that really has resonated with me because of the difference you can make to people's lives as a company if you relentlessly work to push costs down. And though that, that really came from that kind of early experience. Yeah, and when you talk about kind of being a kid who's experienced having the heating or the electricity cut off, it has so many ripple effects, doesn't it? Because you think about kind of the ability to be able to do your homework properly, um, the ability to go to bed at night and fall asleep quickly because you're not freezing, you know. So those experiences, I imagine, must have kind of shaped your need for some kind of security in, in life and want some certainty. So, you know, it probably would have been easy to go through a kind of very kind of normal route, you know, leave university, go work, you know, for one of the big consultancy firms or something or go and do something that's quite steady. Did you you kind of have to fight that because you had this entrepreneurial spirit. Do you know what I mean? Because there was certainty in another career route. You chose a career that perhaps wasn't going to have that natural progression. Yeah. It's, you know, I think interestingly for me, it went the opposite way, which was having lived with basically nothing. I was never scared of it. And I think, so for me, the opportunity was that, whereas maybe people who come from more comfortable backgrounds kind of felt they needed that security mm -hmm. of a regular job and might imagine becoming an entrepreneur, but never, 
you know, never feel comfortable taking the risk. I think for me, I always knew if it went wrong, I'd be fine. And, and that really has been a great strength, actually. Mm. Uh, and, and actually, the other thing was the resourcefulness. When we were, I don't know, probably I was about 10 years, 11 years old, my mum said, look, there's this thing I get every week, the family allowance, I think it's sort of a payment from the state. And she said, look, I'm supposed to spend it on you guys, but if I give you the money instead, but from here on, you're responsible for buying your own clothes, doing your own washing, you know, you make your own decisions. And, and I think that, for example, early on, I stopped buying clothes with that money. I mean, you know, and I, and I bought little bits of electronics instead and, and, mm -hmm. and learned about technology like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and similarly, like my sister, amazing woman, um, uh, she, when, when she'd graduated and, you know, instead of finding somewhere to live, she bought an old removal lorry, a secondhand removal lorry for very, very little money, did a deal with a farmer that she'd park it on his farm um, and help him with the cows and in return not pay any rent. And then she learned the woodworking and metalworking skills to turn it into a home. And she lived in this lorry. And I think that kind of cre sort of creative resourcefulness and comfort in a, in a different environment perhaps has, you know, really helped foster the ability to be an entrepreneur. I think uh, it, that can only work, can't it, with a, with a background or an under kind of pinning of love and security. So you obviously felt, you know, there was, it, while your mum didn't have much materially, there was obviously a lot of love in the house. Oh, Gabby, it was all, I mean, that is, you know what, that is absolutely the essence of it, which was knowing you were loved. I mean, the amount of love we felt meant that you could feel confident Do anything. doing anything, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what, that carries today. So not only with my own family life, is, is giving my boys the most incredible sense that they're loved regardless of anything else. Mm. Um, and, but also like even the way, for example, we run the company, which is, you know, with our team, like really letting them know that they're going to get looked after through thick mm -hmm. and thin. And that it gives them the freedom to make the decisions to, for example, help customers or build new products and services rather than having to go through lots and lots of stuff that's, you know, for, give me the, for, the phrase, but kind of ask covering stuff. So I think that approach to life is, is certainly one that has worked so well for me. Let's talk then about the business, about Octopus and uh, why energy. And, and you, I mean, you've just kind of alluded a little bit to it there. Was it something that you really understood about? What was the uh, attraction specifically? Because there could have been other, lots of other different things that you could make a difference to people's lives on. Yeah, well, fortunately, I, I basically built and run a series of businesses over the years. And the one before Octopus, the big one before Octopus, was a company that built technology platforms for large companies. And when we sold that business, we'd done well enough that we could really think hard about which sector do we care about most? Which one can we make the biggest difference in? And frankly, for me, I was kind of thinking, this is probably the last really significant thing I'll be able to do with my career. So I want to make it matter. And it was in the early 2010s when we started thinking about it. And there were the stories in the media about sort of energy companies back then sort of being excessively profitable. And I knew that the flip of that was, you know, what happened to our family when I was young. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, by the way, I joined Greenpeace when I was 16 because I care enormously about the damage that we do to other people, other species mm -hmm. on our planet. Um, and by the way, I should say, that was slightly disappointing. I thought joining Greenpeace would mean you get to go on the rubber dinghies. Uh, and instead it was, you know, I don't think you use that in a quarterly uh, direct habit, but... <laughs> um, I'm, still, I'm a member now and I'm very proud of what they do. But briefly, sorry, the, um, uh, but in energy, it was about then as well that you were beginning to hear companies blaming the need to move to renewables for high bills. 
Right. And, and what, yeah, what you could see is if we, first of all, we have no choice as a, as a, as a species. We have to reduce the damage to the planet. Otherwise, it will not be here. And, and it's not centuries away. You know, by the end of this century, large parts of the world could be becoming increasingly unlivable if we mm -hmm. don't deal with mm -hmm. this. Right now, there are, there are countries that are facing, you know, disappearing underwater. But, but not only that, you could see that the investments that society were making in the technology behind renewables meant we were tantalizing close to renewables being cheaper than fossil fuels. And we shouldn't row back from that. We needed to double down on it. Mm -hmm. and, and the last bit was that, because I'm from a tech background, you could see that energy companies were using outdated technology and that was pushing costs up and it was making service poor. So we had the ability to create technology, drive down costs, provide better service, help move to a renewable world. I mean, it felt like pretty exciting to me as an opportunity. And so we, you know, I, I and, and a couple of co-founders uh, decided energy was where we wanted to be. And that was how Octopus was born. Um, and that was 2010, you said, when you were kind of formulating all of this, which was, you know, early in the sense that, not early in the sense that there are already renewables, you know, kind of around at that point, but now feels particularly relevant and people are desperate. I mean, personally, we've just been looking into what we can do in our house to, you know, can, can we use kind of a wood chip burner? Can we do, can we have some um, solar panels? You know, and these are conversations we're having with all of my friends. And so you, yeah. you must feel that this is absolutely in the zeitgeist right now. It is. I mean, I think a couple of things. So we were looking at the early 2010s, but we didn't actually start the business till late 2015. And part of that was very candidly, despite what we were talking about earlier about being, being comfortable taking risks, to start an energy company that had a chance of really being successful, we needed to raise 10 million pounds of investment. And all we had was a PowerPoint. You know, we'd never worked in energy before. And my kind of fear of failure, I guess, meant I didn't set out on that journey as early as I should. And I really, I don't have many regrets in life, but we should have started this earlier and had the confidence to go and, and, and raise that money. But as it mm. was, we met brilliant investors in 2015. And, you know, fortunately, that's, that's really paved the way to where we are today. In terms of today, look, I mean, I, I cannot speak strongly enough about the extent to which the global fossil fuel crisis is, you know, there's no words to express it. We say it's going to be tough. It's going to be brutal. The urgency of this. The urgency of it. And, mm. and also the difficulty it's going to cause for so many families. Mm. You know, we start off by my own background and I know that the bills that companies like ours are going to be sending people are going to be as painful as they were when I was a child. And, and, mm. and that, uh, in the short term, we will do everything we can. Like, we know, we've set up I think we're the only energy company that have charged significantly below the price cap. We put all of our resources into doing what we can to keep prices low. But there's nothing you can do in the face of the, you mm. know, th that's going to make a difference in the face of the crisis. What it does speak to is the urgency of moving to renewables. You mentioned there, for example, solar panels for your own home. You know, as a society, every single wind turbine we build, every solar farm we build will reduce our need for gas. Even before the crisis, renewables were now cheaper than energy from gas. So electricity from gas. So going forward, let's never make this mistake again. I'm hearing in the media now, like, you know, let's get more gas. And it's like, you know, gas has caused the problem. Um, we need to do everything we can now to make the most of cheap renewable power. So in the short term, help customers through. And I think maybe we should talk about some of the ideas there. And then in the medium term, and, and it could be as little as, you can build a wind farm in a year, but with the bureaucracy, it takes five, six, seven years. Right. We need to learn from what we did with the, with the vaccine and the pandemic 
to speed up this process. And let's go back to what you just said there then about helping people in the short term. Is this just government intervention? Are the government going to have to come in and put a cap? Are they going to have to come in and subsidise? What do you think the best thing is to do? First of all, the government's energy price cap has at least dampened the impact of, of the crisis. It's now beginning to throw, flow through to bills, but it, you know, we've had more time to prepare for it than we would have done without the price cap. The government has introduced a couple of measures, you know, the £150 council tax rebate, the £200 energy bill rebate. I think we need more. That £200, I think it's very welcome. But, you know, uh, in the face of... That, that was actually decided before the invasion of Ukraine pushed prices even higher. And I think we maybe need to respond to that by more support. And, and then, you know, companies like ours, you know, we've set up our own hardship fund, originally two and a half million pounds, we've doubled it to five million pounds to help the households who need it most. But there's only so much companies can do in, in the face of this global situation. And um, we need to react to this crisis with the same societal drive as we reacted to the financial crisis. And can we talk about whether or not it's still a good sector to invest in energy? Clearly Al Gore thinks so. He uh, His clean energy fund bought a considerable stake in Octopus last year, I think 13%. So uh, that would indicate that it that it is still a good area to invest in. For people listening, would you say so? So I think, first of all, um, uh, the move to renewables is only going to be accelerated by the current crisis. And so, you know, investing in energy companies that are driving the change and are going to enable society to decouple from, from fossil fuels is a long-term wise move. I think, you know, certainly what Al Gore saw and his investment fund saw was that we were investing not only in building that generation, but also building the technology that means it'll drive costs down for customers. And, and we should be clear, shouldn't we, that when you're running um, a gas generation plant, you know, you're burning gas to make electricity, you've got to pay for the gas. When you're running a wind farm or a solar farm, you don't have to pay for the inputs. Wind and sun are free. And increasingly, the cost of the hardware is coming down. Now, as a society, at the same time, we're adopting electric cars and we're going to be moving to electric heating. That is the perfect complement for the renewable generation. So you'll be charging your car's battery when it's windy and sunny and the electrons will be cheaper than they've ever been. So I think that's the future we, we've got to aim for and investing in that is a long-term wise move. What about you personally then? You've mentioned your family and your kids and your kind of um, ethos to them about you know life and a house filled with love. What about investing your money, your personal uh, money? Do you invest in energy or have you, have you always maxed out on kind of things like ISAs and pensions? So until recently, Gabby, being you know, really candid about it, I, I did very little in the way of investing. I, I invested in building the businesses that I ran. And I think that's because it, it gave me a sense of control. Whether that be rational or not, by the way, I mm -hmm. don't know. But so, you know, I invested everything in every business I've built, including Octopus, you know. I had to put a lot of my own money in to start this. And, and so I think that's been the backdrop for me. Over time, I started to invest in other startups because I thought if I invest in entrepreneurs that I can get to know and I can help, and um, that enabled me to not only put money to work, 
but add something you some know, values some value yeah mm. and, and and in doing so you know if it works out then financially that's great and if it doesn't work out actually you know you, you've helped someone you've helped create something and so there's always the, the sort of the, the the double option there so that was an important part for me and certainly in recent relatively recent years I've, I've started investing in a more traditional sense and there it's always in ESG i.e you know uh, funds which are aligned with environmental, uh, social benefits. Always. Is that always uh, yeah, an absolute always. kind of non-negotiable for you? Yeah, it's non-negotiable. I think for two reasons. Again, one is um, rationally, those companies are creating the world we all want to live in. And mm-hmm. I believe in the long run, value accrues to those who do what we need. And the second thing is, you know, I can sleep soundly at night knowing that anything I'm investing in is doing the right thing. And so would that include your pension, uh, your personal pension then obviously, that's got ESG consideration. Yeah, so again, with the company, the only pension I've got is my company pension. And um, uh, with our company, the provider we use didn't offer an ESG option until recently, but we've worked with them to get one and all mine will go into that, yeah. And your own uh, family, tell us, tell us a little bit about how old are your kids now? Yeah, so I've got a five-year-old son and a 15-year-old. Right. And, uh, you know, the 15-year-old is increasingly kind of thinking about what he does next. It's really interesting. He, Frankly, I don't know why to say this, but anyway, he used to be not very interested in education. He's now working really hard. And it reminds me of my own self, really, which was, you know, the way in which I had kind of rejected it for a long time. Then at some point, got with the program the penny drops um, yeah <laughs> yeah and it, but he's chosen that for himself rather than being forced into mm-hmm. it and i think that really helps uh and, and you know the five-year-old is incredibly creative and um letting him wreak havoc and chaos is probably mm-hmm. a good way of capitalizing <laughs> on that skill and do they uh at different ages different different monetary needs in life uh, do they have pocket money and do they have to do jobs for that? i mean at five it's probably a bit young isn't it but the 15 year old would certainly need a bit of cash well, it's interesting, actually. You know, the 15-year-old, like, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of our young generations, not just my own kids, but when I look at the young people that work for our company, for example, you know, they are graduating. They've had to pay for university. They've got student loans. Uh, they're facing more expensive housing than there's ever been. And some of them have been through, you know, a couple of crises, you know, financial crisis followed by the pandemic. I think many times you'll hear politicians talk about snowflake generations, but actually I look at these incredibly hardworking people who care more about each other and, and, and the world and, and yet face these difficult scenarios. And, and when I look at my own you know, oldest child, he, he's so non-materialistic. If you give him money for his birthday or Christmas, he doesn't spend it. You give him, you know, he gets a small amount of pocket money and you know, you, we use the Go Henry app. Yeah, yeah, we use that. <laughs> he barely ever spends it. Um, because he just says, well, what do I want? And I think this less materialistic, harder working mm. generation are actually some people you can be incredibly proud of. And so does he have to do um, chores or jobs or are you kind of are you, you kind of easing him into that? Well, I was going to say, I, I would love to, but given he doesn't actually want to have money. Spend the, anything, yeah. It doesn't work. <laughs> Instead, you know, frankly, if you ask him to do something because it's the right thing to do, he'll do it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, an, yeah. it's a fascinating kind of, you know. Yeah. 
Maybe, maybe in a couple of years he might start getting kind of more interested in in something that he wants to buy. Or of course, when he wants to start driving, or if, if he's a you know, I'm sure by then he'll there'll all be electric cars. But um, I thought that I about so. my own kids, and actually they're going to learn this summer. And kind of we've been advised not to have their first car as an electric car because of insurance premiums. Apparently, are so much higher, uh, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Really, because they're going to be driving electric cars pretty much for the rest of their lives, aren't they? You'd hope so. Um, it does. I we, think insurers are just learning about electric cars aren't they so at the moment they they probably don't know where to price the risk especially for young people well yeah i don't think our kids will be able to afford to fill up their cars anyway (laughs) so um will energy prices ever come back do you think or from what you said earlier on are we are we now in a situation where we're going to have to get used and modify our lives i mean are we talking about rationing energy I, i don't think we're talking about rationing um and i think they will come back What's happening at the moment is after the pandemic, there were supply chain issues in every sector around the world. I mean, you know, I read a story about McDonald's having to fly potato fries from you know, the US to Japan because of the shortages. And we've seen these, you know, the, the chip shortage that means that, um, I mean, the microchip shortage, which means mm-hmm. that the car industry slowed down. Mm-hmm. It, it similarly affected the gas industry. And so the world already had a sort of an imbalance between supply and demand in gas. And then about a year ago, last winter, it was very long uh, winter, very cold, and very late in the year in both Asia and Europe. So you had a shortage of supply of gas and a massive demand. And that meant that we basically normally, we're, as, as a planet, we're filling up our gas storage through summer. And it's this time we're actually depleting it long before we normally be filling it. And that meant we went into this winter with not enough gas, very high prices. And then Ukraine happened. Right, so it's perfect storm. Perfect storm, and I think with Ukraine, I mean, look, obviously, there's far more important issues. You know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I woke up on the morning of the invasion, just hmm. good for the sake of humanity. Mm-hmm. But purely in energy terms, what will be happening at the moment is everyone's trying to work out what happens if we fully sanction Russia, and uh, you know, Russian gas will probably end up going to parts of Asia instead of parts of Europe. The gas that Asia would have taken from the Middle East will probably come to Europe, and that. Global system is reconfiguring as we speak. There's actually a couple, there's, there's the tiniest glimmer of hope, which is that Europe's declared that um, they're going to fill their gas storage to 90% of capacity before next winter. Now, in the short term, that's just pushed prices up higher because there's even more demand. But it means that over next winter, which is when things really matter, we may well go into next winter with more gas in storage and less shortages than we've had this winter. And then we may start to see things moderate. So energy bills are, are going to be horrifically high for another, until the end of the year maybe. And there'll be some lags in the system. I mean, energy companies buy their energy a year in advance often. So we're already buying you know, the energy for next year at these high prices. But the fundamental energy market will sort itself out. More importantly, we have to invest in renewables now. And now, I said to you earlier, we can build a wind farm in the year. By the way, there are 600 wind farm projects, in the wind and solar projects in the UK that are kind of ready to go and just need the, the, the red tape and blocking. That will bring prices down much more quickly than, for example, investing in new gas generation, new gas fields. And are you confident that this government is heeding those warnings and that advice from companies like yourself and from pressure groups and whoever else it is who has the ear to go into these, into the departments and say, now, in the same way as you quite brilliantly put it, we did that for vaccines? Uh, look, I think, first of all, I've been really heartened by a lot of the statements the government have made, being very clear this is a gas crisis. 
It's not caused by the move to net zero. It's caused by global gas mm -hmm. supply and demand issues. Fossil fuels have given us crises every decade. I mean, I remember the 1970s crises mm -hmm. when we ate by candlelight. You know, for the first time, we now have the ability to escape from fossil fuels because renewables are cheaper. They're only cheaper because the investment society made over the last decade or two. So unlike previous ones, we do have an alternative and the government appeared to be very intent on driving that direction. In the short term, there'll be pressures to, for example, get more gas out of the ground. And if there's low hanging fruit, maybe we should do that. But what we should definitely not do is double down on gas. We should double down on renewables. How do you feel over the course of your life, your success and your increased monetary wealth has, has changed you, if at all? And how hard has it been to stick to that 16-year-old boy who joined Greenpeace to stick to his values? Yeah. So, um, first of all, you know, for example, we talked about my sons, right? Both my sons go to local state schools. And in terms of the way kind of I spend my time, well, I, mean, I still work incredibly hard. I think one of the things that I got from my mum, we didn't mention this earlier, not only did she work in a, a pub in the evening, she then started studying as a mature student and got a degree and then got a job and began to earn our, her way and our family's way out of, uh, out of poverty, I guess. And, and, and so, you know, I've always had this work ethic. That hasn't changed. In terms of other stuff, look, I'm, Gabby, I, I pay myself minimum wage in this business. I'm well off because of the businesses we've built before. And I own a chunk of this one. And if it's successful, I'll do okay. But I don't, I think it's very important to stay, uh, what's the word? Grounded? Stay grounded, yeah. And, and so um, decisions like that are actually, you know, it is painful because you could choose to pay yourself. You know, when you run the business, you could choose to pay yourself. Well, also, you must see other successful entrepreneurs. You must, you know, in the entrepreneurs club and, the, you know, the kind of dragons kind of style lifestyle think, well, oh, that would be nice. Yeah, that would be nice to have that. Oh, I might, you know, it, does that, your head never get turned in that way? Look, I think, first of all, I'm well off because of other businesses I've built and that we've mm -hmm. sold and, and done well with. I've invested a lot into Octopus, but in the long run, I really hope that pays off. And, you know, the other entrepreneurs, they look at what Octopus is doing to change the world. And I think I feel really gratified that they mm -hmm. value and approve that. And, and I, you know, uh, there's a couple of things. So, for example, I'm, I'm more likely these days to get an Uber into work than I am to ride my bike. But that's just because I need to be able to get my laptop out and get some work that I can't, you know, I've got to use every hour. I leave the office at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday um, to pick my youngest boy from school and every other Friday. And trying to cram it all in is difficult. The number of times I've been cooking whilst holding a phone to my ear whilst trying to stop, you know, one of them kind of injuring himself is, you know, all that's still real. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, so I, I've done a couple of things. it sounds like to me that actually the thing you value most is time. It, honestly, time is everything. I mean, first of all, it's really interesting. I sometimes say actually in, in business, you can always raise investment. You know, you can find ways to, to get people to put money into business, but you can never raise time. So the single biggest asset we have as a business and as an individual is time. Someone said to me, you know, we've all got the same amount of time on this earth per day as Mary Curie. And look what she did. Are you doing as much as she did? <laughs> and, and, and today you could look at someone like Elon Musk, who, you know, we think we're busy. And then he's simultaneously building the company that is revolutionizing electric cars that people said could never be done. And 
the one that does space rockets, and then in the spare time doing satellite internet and, and building tunnels. I mean, I think we can all learn about how to use time better, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and I think people kind of can make excuses for themselves, can't they, about time and what they're actually filling their time with. So would you say that is actually, if you're talking to young people who have got aspirations to be entrepreneurs, that that's one of the most important things is to, to value time? Yeah, I often say I think there are probably three things on that. So the first one is decide if you really want to be an entrepreneur, because it is risky and it's hard work. I read a great book on entrepreneurship that said, look your friends in the face and then tell yourself you're not going to see them again for 10 years, right? <laughs> look your family in the face and tell them they're not going to see very much of you for the next 10, and so on. And by it's not 10 years, it ends up being a lifetime. Uh, I th- and, and, and really know that everything is on the line. You know, age 30, Gabby, I'd, I'd had a business that, that had gone wrong and I had mm. something like a million pounds of debt and no job and no savings. And you know, that's part of the way that business can go, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should be rose tinted about entrepreneurship. The second thing um, you know, I say to them is, uh, don't be a entrepreneur. All right? You know, time and again, I've sat there with people say, when I've got these three things sorted, then I'll do it. And when I've got these mm-hmm. three things, it's like you're always going to have things mm-hmm. you need to sort. Mm-hmm. Either admit to yourself you're never going to do it and enjoy that. There's nothing wrong with not being an entrepreneur. <sighs> or just do it. And, and there's a good friend of mine, and, and every time we went for a career, every few months, he, um, he'd say like, no, no, I'm nearly ready to do it. And he'd been doing it for two or three years. And eventually I said, look, mate, you're either going to carry on doing this every time for go for curry or just do it. Anyway, next time I went for curry, he said, I did it. And I was a bit worried because I was like, How it and he said, I've never been yeah, happy. Is it going to come back to you? <laughs> exactly. But actually he's never been happy. It's been incredibly successful. And, and the last one I say to people is don't be an entrepreneur for the money, right? Do it because your heart's in something. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if your heart's not in something, you know, it's only ever going to be a chore. Mm-hmm. But if your heart's mm-hmm. in it, regardless of where it works out financially, you have done something you care about. And, and back to time, you know, you've only got one life. Spend on stuff you care about. I think time, as you say, I think that's a common theme, actually, to a lot of people I speak to on this, this podcast, how important time becomes as well in terms of balancing your life. Do you feel you've got that now, that kind of good balance that perhaps you didn't quite have at the beginning? You know what? Every time you get it, every time I get some spare time, I find a way to fill it. And the way I fill it usually creates a lot of demands on time in future. <laughs> but I think that's a good way of getting things done. But it does mean there's never a moment where you go, now it's all sorted. Because no. look, I mean, given the opportunity we have to, to drive change in one of the most important sectors in the world, I mean, I, I'm not going to get this chance again, right? So I, I don't want to no. waste it. And also, as you say, it's, you know, there's so much still growing and moving in this area, which is fantastic because we need technology to, you know, kind of accelerate even more to allow people to live more sustainable lives. So it's never, it's never going to end, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> Greg, it's never, it's never going to, you're going to reach a finish point. And, and that's, you know what, so there'll be a, per, a finish point for me personally at some point when I'm no longer adding value, right? And one day our board or our shareholders will say, Greg, See you, yeah, right. But until that moment, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that today something like 80 odd percent of the world's primary energy needs are not met by sustainable fuel. I'm conscious that fossil fuels gave, you know, Putin the uh, resources, but also the leverage to mm-hmm. do what he's doing, and 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 have caused all kinds of crises throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. So the chance to do something about that 
Um, it's such a privilege. And, and we now have you know, 2,800 people working in our company that have joined largely because they want to be on that mission. So yeah, there's, th there is an awful lot of opportunity to keep driving this change across the world. And by the way, there are, there are 800 million people in the world that don't have access to energy, right? So once, I think energy is going to be like, like it's going to be like um, uh, telecommunications where you know, the solutions uh, to the problems we've got in, in the West actually enables to drive down the cost and bring entirely new uh, opportunities for, for clean, green energy to places that have never had it and they don't have the legacy of your grid. And, 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 you know, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a lot left in this job, I guess. Yeah, a lot to do. You mentioned how important your workforce are to you and how you want to create a wonderful atmosphere as well for everybody who works for you. And you want the customer also to have a, a great experience. There's a lot of pressure, isn't it? There's a lot of people's lives that you're, you know, direct, it sounds like directly linked to. Yeah, I think, first of all, we absolutely are intent on doing good. And that actually takes a lot of the stress away. Because, you know, if you try to do good stuff and, you know, something goes wrong or it's hard work, you can at least, you know, you've got, you can look inside yourself and say, we did it for the right reason. And then I think there's a lot of research, isn't it, that says that a driver of stress is lack of control. And, and the, one of the great privileges of being an entrepreneur or a CEO is you've got a lot of control. And, and I think that's less stressful in a way than for a lot of the team in many companies who a kind of a servant to the machine. And, and so in a way, yes, there's a lot of responsibility, but there's also a lot of opportunity to do something about it. And, and that's not as stressful as people may think. Well, you're certainly doing it in a, a fantastically proactive and passionate way. And I think that is going to drive you on for many, many more years, Greg. So uh, thank you so much for sharing you know, your early life and what led you to, to be the man and the entrepreneur that you are today. I think it's been, I think it'd be a fascinating listen for anybody who's with us today. So good luck in the future and uh, thanks for your time because I know it's valuable. <laughs> no, no, honestly, Gabby, thank you for the opportunity to talk. It'd be great meeting you. Thanks for listening. If you've got time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 